Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today again, we're gonna have the battle of accents here. You know, the Spanish, you know, Spanglish, you know, some of you, you know, tell me. And then also we're gonna have the British as well. But uh, with without a doubt, you guys are gonna be learning a lot, getting inspired because our founder, you know, that we have joining us today, he's done it so many times that I was like losing already the amount, you know, the count on the times that he has built, scaled, sold, you know, done all types of stuff with hyper growth companies. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Keith Terra. Welcome to the show. Buenos dias, Alejandro. ¿Cómo está? Muy bien. Eh? Muy bien. Doing very well. So, so I want to do a little of a walk through memory lane here, Keith. Why don't you give us a little of, of an insider view at how was life growing up there in the UK? Because I know that, you know, it's not, not that easy. You know, I know that you were also the first one that attended college out of the family. You were the older of... Uh, of, of six siblings. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Well, I, you know, life, life was, uh, I don't want to over-dramatize it. I lived on a, on a council estate is what we call it in England. In, in America, they call it projects, um, which is basically municipal housing. It was quite nice. Four bedrooms, front and backyard in a country area. So I, I don't want to say it was terrible. It was fine. Um, alcoholic father. Um, lovely mother who had to deal with that and um, grew up with a sense of injustice. Uh, you know, when you're poor in England and you see the queen with a crown and her jewels, it doesn't feel good to you. You think there's something wrong with that. And so I grew up a bit of a rebel, uh, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. And my way of dealing with that was reading and understanding. You know, in England at the age of 11, they test you back in the day when I was going to school. And they put you in the B stream if you fail the test. And I failed the test, so I went to the B stream. Uh, I was only 10 because my birthday is August 27th, and the cutoff date is September 1st. So I, I took the test a year early. I was borderline, interviewed by the headmaster who asked, what does your dad do? And my dad worked for the Secret Service, so I actually didn't know what he did. So I, so I, 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 I failed, and they put me in the B stream age of 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, I'm in the B stream. Uh, and going to school every day, looking at factories that the teachers tell you, that's where you're going to work when you finish school. And you finish school at the age of 15 in the B stream. So I hated that idea. So um, luckily, a second exam was invented during my years. And at the age of 15, you could try again. And I tried again and passed and got straight A's and went back to the A stream. And showed up at the high school, what is called a high school. Uh, it's basically a grammar school in English. And was told, uh, Keith, don't bother applying for university. You, you know, you're probably not going to get in, which made me super angry. Um, and, and honestly, up, uh, up until that moment, I didn't plan to apply for university. But as soon as that was said, I knew I was going to go to university. So I changed my whole outlook, uh, started social and economic history, economics, British constitution. Uh, why? Because I thought politics was the way to change the world. And history, knowing history was a good way to change things. You know, my heroes were people like Che Guevara. Um, 
Karl Marx, you know, uh, uh, people like that. And um, I succeeded. I got to university in Canterbury, University of Kent. I, I'm now a doctor at that university and um, did super well. I got the best degree in my year. Uh, was a very strong political activist uh, leading. I, I led marches and protests and wrote a lot. But I also was the guy who booked the bands. So I remember I booked 10CC and uh, the manager was Ray Davis from the Kinks. And I hung out with Ray Davis. So I, I kind of bridged entertainment and politics. And, but I studied hard as well. So I did pretty well uh, and learned to code. I learned to code with the earliest, it was called a Sinclair Spectrum and then a Commodore 64. Why? Because it was kind of interesting. I, I didn't have a purpose, really. It just thought, wow, that's super cool. Let me try that. And I was a statistics. As part of my university degree, I did statistics. So I was quite numerate, and computers helped there. I, I use that today at SignalRank. Uh, everything I learned then, I'm using now in, in uh, AI and machine learning. So, it, 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 so that kind of changed me from uh, angry to, I think, more optimistic and focused on doing stuff. Like the problem solving, because obviously, you know, at that point you got started with building companies and you never stopped. I mean, the the first day in rodeo, you know, that you did, you know, it was in the publishing side of things and and you handed over that business to your brother. So so obviously, you know, that led to to ultimately what has been, you know, a really big success, you know, EasyNet. But um, but on that business that you handed over to your brother, you know, that that kind of like first rodeos. Uh, in the in the venture space or in the entrepreneurial space, I mean, what was that lesson that you had to learn from that journey? Well, I mean, the first thing is, I worked with my brother, which, by the way, is never easy. I don't know if anyone's ever worked with their sibling, but uh, siblings fight, right? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, so I, I worked with my brother. Uh, I love my brother dearly, and uh, my brother was uh, somebody who stayed in the B stream at school. By the way. I bought him a, a, a computer whilst he was a taxi driver when he was 18 years old, and he learned to code. He eventually became a CTO of a public company. Um, so, so, so the first thing is never underestimate someone's potential is a really huge lesson. Uh, that, uh, he was written off, really, uh, and, and he became a fantastic CTO. Um, the second is... You've got to do the work yourself to understand how to work with other people on the work. So I, I, I coded systems for people like Warner Brothers Music and Mobile Oil in that business before my brother uh, came in and started coding. And he was a way better coder than me. Uh, but I, you know, I needed to understand how to do the job, how to, what customers needed. I did a lot of grunt work. I was traveling a lot to customers, doing support and so on. And then... To be honest, it almost got too successful. Uh, by, by 1993, we were doing, you know, there was only two of us in the business. We were doing millions of dollar, pounds a year in revenue and didn't have to do much work because it was mainly support work for software that we deployed. So it was boring and uh, I got lazy. And so I gave him the stuff as a way to force me to do something new. Hmm. I, I basically said, look, if you if you keep paying me a salary for six months, I'll give you all the stock. And after six months, you stop paying me. And it created this kind of requirement of me to uh, to make EasyNet successful in six months. 
And we started using that in, in uh, the idea was June 94, and we opened for business in August 94. So I had two months to learn Unix, how to make an ISP network, how to validate logins, uh, everything, mail servers, news servers, web servers, the whole thing in 94. And that, that was like a month sitting in a room with books and a computer. By the way, paying out using a credit card uh, for wow. all the systems. So taking taking the risk too. But hey, that was that was quite a fulfilling journey too because you took that company public. So and it and it was saying valued at, at one point at a billion. So what was like to take a company public? I mean, obviously you were now, you know, uh, an entrepreneur, you know, you had done, you know, stuff in the past, but taking a company public, that's quite a milestone. What was the experience like? Well, you would you would think the answer should be that it was awesome, but actually it completely sucked. It was Why? it was it was terrible. Well, firstly, it was a UK IPO on the market called AIM. AIM it stands for the Alternative Investment Market, and the amount of money we raised was two million dollars at a twenty million dollar valuation. Uh, sorry, pounds, all pounds, um, and uh, so it was a small amount of money. Uh, changing for us, but a small amount of money. It was not a US IPO. Within three years, EasyNet was worth hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions. Uh, uh, but at the beginning, it was $20 million and $2 million. Secondly, the board of directors changed to become financial people, not, not, not part of the company at all, just external control agents, if you will. And I would, uh, at that time, EasyNet was the center of London life. Maurice Saatchi, Sinead O'Connor, Johnny Rotten would all come to our office. Um, Mick Jagger helped us launch a website. We, we were like the center of attention. And I was the ideas guy. So I would go to the board and say, we should do this, or we should do that, or we should do something else. And the board always said, no, we got to focus on you know, the core business. So they destroyed the opportunity for EasyNet to become the vehicle for internet growth in, in Europe. They, they kept it very narrow, even though it was successful. And I, I, they told me to stop bringing ideas, so I resigned. And I moved to the U.S. Moved to Palo Alto. And obviously, you know, here you, you continue, you know, doing good stuff. You know, in fact, the next company that you did, that was a real, uh, real names. And essentially, real names... You know, what you, what you, one thing that I thought it was pretty incredible, I mean, pretty impressive is that literally the company became a unicorn in just two years. So what do you yeah. think, you know, now that you're looking back, what do you think allowed for that to happen? Well, partly it was the, the environment. Um, it, it was 1997, 98, and that was the up curve of the internet bubble that we all have heard about. And so value, I raised $130 million in 12 months through three rounds of financing. Um, so, you know, things were moving fast generally, but that couldn't happen unless you had got something that was growing. And what Real Names did is it, it, it started with the recognition that most people in the world couldn't use the internet because they don't speak English. Mm. Um, and so if you tried to type in Arabic on the internet in 1997, you couldn't. Um, the web browser only let you type HTTP, www, something dot something using Latin characters. It didn't even allow you to use accents. For example, you couldn't use accents or umlauts. Um, so real names actually created the addressing system 
that enabled every language in the world to become a web address. That's why it's called real names. You could use your own language and you could type in Arabic, for example, Wall Street Journal, and we would send you to the Wall Street Journal website, even though you typed in Arabic. And Larry and Sergey built that into Google. We partnered with them before they had any revenue, actually. We were their first revenue. Wow. So you would go, you would go to Google and type in, uh, in Arabic, Wall Street Journal. If we had that, it would come right at the top and it would say real name and it looked, it looked like official. And if you clicked on it, you'd go to the Wall Street Journal website, even though you typed in Arabic and Google called that I'm feeling lucky. Um, and today when you use Chrome and you type in Chrome, that's our technology idea. Uh, it's still there. And it's in uh, Microsoft partnered with us and put it into Internet Explorer, which, by the way, Internet Explorer was 98% of browsers back in those days. So we had worldwide reach. And between 97 and 2002, we grew to about 2 billion consumers delivered to websites using keywords all over the world. The Chinese government became our partner in Japan, in Korea. In, in South Africa, in France. Uh, it was a real global phenomenon. And how, how is it like to negotiate with the Chinese government? That must be quite uh, unique. The, the most interesting thing is they don't tell you what they want. Um, I, I, it took two years. And I thought the price we were asking was the, the, pro, the reason why it was going so slow. And it turned out the only thing they really wanted was that the servers were in China. Uh, because the Chinese are super um, convinced that the world doesn't like them and might cut them off. So they want to have assets that they control so that if they get cut off, it keeps working. And so Ch Chinese nationalism is very defensive. It's not an aggressive nationalism like U.S. nationalism or British nationalism, which I, I think of as aggressive nationalism. It's like we rule the world. You do what we say. The Chinese, it's you're going to kill us, so we need to do something to protect ourselves. Um, and, and it's very different nationalism. So as soon as I realized that, the deal got done and they paid us $10 per year per Chinese keyword. Unbelievable. And what and ended by, up being by the... By the way, there was a soldier with a gun at the desk when I signed the documents. Oh, my God. So you want to make sure that uh, you're not pulling any, any, any weird move there. Otherwise, eh? you, you'll be in trouble. <laughs> Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, for you guys, you know, after this, you know, you 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 ended up being uh, involved with TechCrunch, you know, a company that I'm sure that many of the listeners, you know, are going to recognize. I'm yeah. sure that many, many have read multiple articles on this uh, on this website. I mean, what a, what an impact that that had. Now, in this case, you were the founding shareholder. I mean, you were. Uh, basically pretty much incubated this thing out of the uh, studio that you had. And you had Mike Arrington that you partner up with, who, who essentially is the founder. And you owned 75% of the company and he owned the rest. So how, what happened there? I mean, it's pretty impressive. I mean, I understand that literally, you know, you ended up doing a swap and, 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 and giving away, you know, most of that equity away. I mean, most people wouldn't do that, but walk us through how that happened and how do you really deal with this type of tension, you know, in a, in a founding, you know, team or perhaps, you know, environment at an early stage? Well, look, it, it starts by, you have to be humble and honest. Um, if you're if you're if, if if you're not humble and honest, you do all the wrong things. And in the case of TechCrunch, um, to be specific, I own seventy five percent of Archimedes Ventures, which was the incubator for TechCrunch. And me and Mike were partners in Archimedes Ventures, and we kind of owned everything that came out of Archimedes Ventures in that seventy five twenty five way. But we but but uh, so um, yeah, implicitly, I I, I own seventy five percent on day one. However, there's some facts that, that one needs to know. The first is TechCrunch was Mike's idea and only his idea. We, we had a separate idea called Edgeo that we worked on that we were also 75, 25 in. I was against the idea. I, I said to Mike, you know, Mike, a blog is really too small an idea to spend the next 10 years of your life on. You should think of something bigger. And he said, no, I really, he, he, he was determined to do it. And Mike's both tenacious. He's a, he's a very good researcher. Uh, he works super hard. I don't know anyone that works harder than him. And he built TechCrunch by interviewing startup founders of Web2. Web2 was just beginning in 2005. And he made the whole thing happen, the whole thing. So pretty soon, I, I don't know how long, it might have been a year, Mike came to me and said, you know, it really isn't fair that I'm, I'm doing all the work in this thing and you own all this stock. Um, and I said, no, you're right. It, it isn't fair. Um, uh, it's a historical artifact of what we agreed in back then. Why don't we flip it around? Uh, you have 75 and I'll have 25, the same as in Edgeo. Now, Mike, Mike's a negotiator. Uh, it's one of his best characteristics. And he said, how about 10% for me, 10%. And I shook his hand immediately and said, deal, let's do it. Because I didn't have any sense of ownership or proprietorship over TechCrunch. I didn't yeah. believe it was my idea. And I thought he was right that it wasn't fair. So, um, so, we, so we did that. 
deal on a handshake. By the way, we never papered the deal for a long time. And Mike was always honorable to it, always. Wow. That's incredible. Now, the company, I understand, you know, it was rumored that it was acquired for 40 million bucks. So, you know, great, great outcome. Now, I guess, you know, like in this case for you, you know, one thing led to the next. You know, you you took some some roles, advisory, you know, like helped other companies. But very recently, you thought it was time to go at it again with SignalRank. So, so why SignalRank? You know, out of all things, out of all the companies that you've been involved with, all this know-how, these lessons learned, why did you think that the problem that SignalRank is right now addressing, it was good enough for you to take another step at entrepreneurship? Yeah, great question. Um, it took me quite a long time to decide to do single rank. Um, I, I wrote an essay back in 2013. The title of the essay was, This is Not Silicon Valley. And I had that uh, picture of that famous painting with a pipe that says, This is not a pipe. I can't remember the, the artist now. Um, and and um, th th what that 2013 essay documented was the change in venture capital from a single asset class that lived on Sand Hill Road into what today is three asset classes, seed investors, venture investors, and growth investors. More or less seed investing didn't exist before TechCrunch. There was no such thing. And seed investing started to exist around 2007. And today there are you know, more than a thousand seed funds around the world 700 here in Silicon Valley that dominate early stage investing. And what that early essay said was that the rise of seed investing is creating a brand new set of opportunities and different dynamics for founders. And it was important to start learning it. Uh, what that led to is this recognition. 100% of all unicorns come out of seed investment stage these days. By the time a company does a B round, those seed investors are getting diluted because they don't have the capital to keep going. So the people who help the companies come to life get punished for not having enough capital. Uh, the venture investors come in and dilute them, but worse still, the growth investors, people, people who write huge checks, dilute them even more. So what, what I realized is if you could provide capital to the seed and A round investors to, to keep going, to maintain their shares at the B and the C and the D, that the more money would be made than they make from their original investments. So Signal Rank basically started, um, and I'm a data guy going way back to when I did the Warner Brothers music stuff. I'm, I, I live in data in my head and stats and patterns. So I, I built, Signal Rank is, a, is an AI platform that answers the question, if you're going to give money to the A-round investors to keep going, which of their companies should you give it to? Because you obviously you shouldn't do it for all of their companies because not all of their companies are equally good. So we, we built a prediction engine that predicts the best B-rounds. Typically, it's less than 10% of B-rounds. It's around 6% of B-rounds that the engine selects. And uh, that engine, when it selects a B-round, 30% of those companies end up being unicorns, which is incredible, right? Every one out of three investments becomes a unicorn. When the, wow. normal, the, the normal venture rules are one in 10 uh, might return your fund. 
this is one in three. And so we back-tested it like you do with AI. We back-tested it in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. We stopped in 2017 because we want to see what the world looks like five years later to see if it worked. Uh, and um, it works. So Signal Rank basically is, is it combines AI with fintech. The AI, the AI bit is about which companies do you select through which partnerships with which, which seed and A round investors. And then the, um, the other bit is, um, how do you, how do you access putting money into these B rounds? Cause these are the most competitive B rounds on the planet. Well, we access them by partnering with the A round investors for their follow on rights. So we have a predetermined right to invest. Um, and the returns are fantastic. When you model out the returns, uh, most venture funds return less than two times the money in actual cash. Um, the good ones, that's the good ones. Um, it's called DPI. Um, we, uh, our average performance at the five-year mark is six times the money. Uh, so one in three unicorns is six times the money. Now, obviously, that's based on backtesting. As they always say on Wall Street, you, the future may not be like the past, but it's, it, it's a very de-risked capital allocation platform. So that's the fintech bit. It, it's, it's AI meets fintech. And uh, for that reason, we're structured as a company. Although we're investing in, in uh, B rounds, we're not a fund. Uh, we sell shares to our shareholders. In fact, we have our first preferred share sale this month in March, uh, closing on the 31st. Uh, every penny that comes in that buys our shares gets invested in B rounds. 100%. And uh, our shareholders, a little bit like Berkshire Hathaway, they're sitting with our shares on top of all these assets. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking too. That's what I was thinking too. A similar model, but more like the 3.0 of um, Berkshire Hathaway. So I guess if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of signal rank is fully realized, what does that world look like, Keith? The main thing about that world is we'd be publicly listed on the NASDAQ, and I think we will be probably late 2026, early 2027-ish. Um, that means that my brothers and sisters can buy our shares as a way of owning the best private companies. Uh, my brothers and sisters are, are not qualified investors, so they, they're not allowed to invest in high-growth private companies. But if a public company has as assets those companies, they can buy the shares of that public company. So basically, by being listed and having access to these uh, best rounds, we'll, 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 you know, and we, we allocate capital, by the way, automatically through an algorithm. It's not a subjective decision. It's the, the AI says yes, so we do it. Um, and and um, it means that normal people can benefit from the highest growth companies in a publicly traded stock that's liquid. Venture capital isn't liquid. The nice thing about Signal Rank is you'll be liquid in assets that are not. And that's a huge change. Yeah, no kidding. Now, we were talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. I mean, obviously, all those different companies that you've done, you know, multiple that have become billion-dollar companies, you know, exits, I mean, all of the above. If I was to give you the opportunity of going into a time machine, Keith, and you go back in time to that moment that 
you were coming out of school, you know, you were wondering what was going to be that thing for you, maybe start a business. If you could go back to that moment and give that younger kid one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Hmm. Well, there's a, there's a couple of selfish answers, and then there's some more, what I think are probably more valid answers. The selfish answers are um, uh, don't sell too early. Uh, EasyNet, when I resigned, I was told that I had to sell all my shares uh, because I was resigning. That probably wasn't true, but I didn't know better. So I sold all my shares, and a year later, the shares would have been worth 20 times more. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, Having said that, I had credit card debt right up until that moment, and the amount I made from selling the shares changed my life. Mm. So, so, uh, so I don't want to be too bitter about that. The second piece of advice is uh, sell when you have the chance, which is the opposite advice. Uh, real names, uh, we could have sold real names for more than a billion dollars to uh, Network Solutions, which which became Verisign, and. Um, we said no because we were filed for an IPO at 500 million more than that. And um, within three months, the bubble had burst and we were no longer worth that, but we didn't sell. So at real names, I, uh, I never made a penny, not a penny. So one is don't sell too early. The other is sell when you can. Uh, and they're opposite advice, and it depends on the circumstance. So probably the right answer is sell something early, but not everything. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. So for the people that are listening, Keith, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? A couple of ways. I'm, I'm at K-T-E-A-R-E K -T -E -A -R -E on Twitter. And I publish uh, That Was The Week on Substack. So if you go to thatwasthweek.substack.com, you can uh, subscribe for free to my weekly newsletter. Um, those are probably the two best ways. Or go on the SignalRank uh, website and you'll find various ways to connect to me there as well. SignalRank.co. Amazing. Well, Keith, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Uh, pleasure to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.